0: This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counselling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Erin Aldrich Sheen represented the United States of America in two separate sports, representing the USA national volleyball team and competing at the 2000 Summer Olympics in the high jump. Erin was ready to take her story of underage grooming and sexual assault by her college track coach to the grave until a trigger unleashed her darkest secrets of abuse. It is my privilege and honor to welcome Erin Aldrich Sheen to Open Stance. Erin, hi. Welcome to Open Stance. How are you? Good. Thank you. First of all, why don't we just tell our listeners, where are
1: you Zooming in from today, Erin? Yeah, so I am in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Dallas, so but we just recently moved back here um in September we were in San Diego for about 10 years before that so it's good to be home (laughs) that's awesome and um okay so you're a native
0: Texan and if somebody does a google search on you, Aaron they're going to come up immediately with some pretty amazing um sporting credentials you are an Olympic class high jumper you have been an elite volleyball player Uh, and I've also heard, I think we spoke about this, you had a real love for tennis, and you actually got recruited by a school for tennis. So quickly tell us about um, all these sports and um, how they all fit into your life.
1: Yeah so, that, the, yeah, so the story that I love to tell is that um, I, I knew what I wanted to do early on. So when I was six, I, I told my parents that I wanted to be an Olympian, and we would take our motorhome my parents had bought a motorhome because they wanted us to experience all the states in the United States by the time we graduated high school so they bought this motorhome and every summer my dad would take you know a couple months off of work he was in commercial real estate so he had that flexibility and we would travel to a different part of the United States and just explore and discover and um it was great we got to see all 50 states by the time we were maybe in high school and wow. Um, yeah. And it was 1984 when we were on a motorhome trip and the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics were on television. And, um, I remember vividly turning to my parents and saying, I'm going to be an Olympian someday. And my parents were like, I mean, they, they were never really elite athletes themselves. They were just kind of like, okay, well it's, it's good to have goals and dreams, honey. And (laughs) I remember looking at them and being like, no, 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 no. I don't, think you understand, I'm I'm going to be an Olympian someday, like take me seriously. And they were like, okay, well, you know, keep working at it. It's good to have goals and dreams. And, and so it, it was really at that point that I made it a point to make an Olympic team someday. I, I started, you know, really, really focusing on it and it was in all of my goals. And I didn't know what sport it was going to be at that time. Um, I was playing soccer I played tennis. I was a ballerina, which was definitely not a good choice for me because I I can't sit still long enough to like look graceful as a ballerina, but, uh, but I am tall and lanky. And so that worked for me. Um, I was in gymnastics for a little while, but I was pretty much like a slinky trying to do any kind of, um, back handspring or anything like that. So that didn't work. And I just kind of tried every single sport along the way I went into basketball, which was an obvious fit for my height. And then um, the last two sports that I tried were volleyball and track when I got into elementary school, which I just kind of went through that, um, that progression of, you know, you play volleyball in the fall and then you do basketball and then you go into track and, you know, summer. And, and so I just, I did all the sports and it was really when I got into those went volleyball and and track that I was like, I think this is, I think these are the sports. Um, And he dropped. Yeah. And then, you know, like I went into on, onto the track. And of course I was so tall for my age that they were like, okay, you need to be it to the high jump apron. (laughs) And so, um, immediately started doing the high jump and it was just, it was almost like I was like born to high jump Fantastic. Yes. And so that
0: all, all of that was um, a runway for you to compete in the 2000 Sydney, Australia Olympics. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Which is where, yes. where I'm zooming in from. I today. Know. I'm down here as a <laughs> California girl, um, living down here for 13 years now. But um, when I read that um, you were Olympian and got to know that history of you, it's pretty cool that um, you were down here.
1: Sydney well. is one of my
0: favorites. So, so <laughs> that have, so your
1: dream, you you, your dream came true. You made it to the yeah. Sydney Olympics. How was that? Oh my gosh! Um, so if you ask anyone who's been to a lot of the Olympic Games, like what the best Olympics were, Sydney almost always is one of the one of the top two or three. Um, I've been to a few I've been to Atlanta to watch I've been to uh, Atlanta I competed in the 1996 Olympic trials went to Atlanta. To watch the Olympics, because I was in high school and I narrowly missed making the Olympic team that year um, obviously competed in Sydney amazing Olympics, um, and then I was an alternate um in Athens in 2004. Blew out my knee right before 2008 for Beijing, so I didn't get to go to that one. 2012, I went as a spectator. Loved London, so London is one of my favorites too. But the other one that you hear about is Barcelona. Everyone says Barcelona, Sydney, and I think London is was great. So it's kind of those two or three for me from what I've heard and what I've experienced.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Sydney was amazing. Wow. Congratulations on that. That's just um, to make it to that level is as an athlete growing up, just um, a phenomenal accomplishment and achievement. So um, so listening to all that, your your sporting career is just um, world class. And um, it'd be, it's really interesting now, though, that when somebody goes to their Google search and, and looks you up, you see this impressive history of everything you've just talked about. But now there is another story that's attached to your name. Um, And it has to do with the lawsuit.
1: Yeah, so it was interesting when you, when we first started uh, recording here and you had said, you know, when you Google your name, all these great accomplishments come up. And I thought, man, (laughs) I feel like when you Google my name now, those are like buried. And really what you see is what I'm going through right now, which was never, ever intended. Um, I had planned on, dying with this secret that I had because it was just really too humiliating to let the public in on. Um, and you know, you feel what secret, right, what secret did you bear? So, so when I was in high school, um, in the recruiting process, my coach, my then my future coach, I guess at that time, he was the coach at the university of Arizona when he was recruiting me, um, groomed me, Groomed me into a position where it turned into a relationship, a relationship prior to anything physical happening because he wasn't physically in Dallas. He was just recruiting me, and so we would have like super lengthy phone calls, and that's kind of that was kind of where that grooming process started. And then really, the moment I turned 18, um, I made a a World Junior Championship team in Sydney and went to, went to Sydney, Australia with Team USA. It was the first international competition uh, I had ever been to. And um, my high school coach could not attend it with me. So my parents sent the next best person that they knew to send with me, um, giving him 100% of, of their trust because he had essentially groomed them as well uh, through the whole process. I think what we learned when we learn about grooming, is that it's not just um, the victim that's groomed. There are also other victims in the process too, which can be your closest friends and family. And they earn, they they do everything they can to earn the trust of those who are the most important people in your life. So they obviously trusted him with their daughter, you know, to send them to send him with me to Sydney. And it was on the plane ride to Sydney, which was the first time really that I can remember that we were completely alone together, where the now what I call sexual abuse happened. Um, at the time, it was an exciting thing for me to think about because of that grooming process and feeling like, you know, this was uh, an exciting moment because we were going to actually be able to be alone and be, you know become, you know, go into this relationship, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I look back at that story and I I, I just think like, you know, A, I was super naive because I had never had a relationship with anyone, you know, of the opposite sex or at all at that time. So um, he was, the first experience I had the first physical, really emotional experience I had, um, that was sexual. And so it was, it's really horrifying to think about now, but, um, but yeah, I lived with it for years thinking. Yeah. So
0: you, there's a, there's a quote that, um, is in one of the USA today articles that I read. And it's an article that, for me keeps coming up. There's so much um, in this article by Christine Brennan um, of USA Today. Um, And in in this article, there's a quote and there's about four sentences from you and each one has um, incredibly powerful meaning behind it. But the um, the first sentence that you say is, I stayed silent for over 20 years because the thought of coming forward was horrifying to me. But I decided that I couldn't stay silent any longer. Um, So just starting with that bit, before you go on to the next two sentences, 20 years. There was a time um, 20 years prior that you actually recognized at some stage there was a problem, and that this was not the relationship you thought. It was an abusive. this, it was an abusive relationship and you were the victim here. But for 20 years um, after you had made that decision, um, something obviously was powerful enough in your life to trigger that, um, to bring it to the surface. So can you tell us at what stage you actually recognized that this was an abusive relationship and you had been the victim of this predator? Um, and what was it in your life that was so powerful um, that it actually broke your silence and you were able yeah. to find your voice?
1: Yeah. Um, as you're running through that, there are so many facets of this whole process that you want to kind of that I would love to, to take everyone through. But what happened was I always knew that this is this is probably not appropriate like I my coach was so much older than I was um he was married um but I almost felt like I I I couldn't I, I couldn't control myself following falling in love with this person I mean this is like one of the most powerful if not the most powerful high jump coaches in the country and he and he's kind of coming on to and like telling me that I'm beautiful and, and he knew all of those things to say because I was this lanky high school kid that so desperately wanted to, I I was, I had these crushes on these boys, but like to them, I wasn't attractive because I was like this tall, lanky, skinny girl that was taller than them and like super awkward in their eyes probably. And so, I so badly wanted a relationship but you know I was just young at the time and so he knew that you know and so he knew those buttons to push um, and and did beautiful he, and what have, and did
0: he know about your the one sorry to interrupt the Olympic passion dream oh. that you have like ha- the power you just mentioned he's a specialist most oh, yes. respected in the high jump, and he would be an absolute
1: pathway to your Olympic dream. So that Absolutely. came across, is that, was that something? So oh, 100%, like the only thing I would talk about at that time was Um, how I wanted to break the world record. I had said when I was six, I was going to make an Olympic team. That was all I thought about. Like I almost missed my prom because I was, you know, needed to go to state and win an ash and win a state championship. And that was the most important thing to me at that time. So I didn't date. I was training all the time and doing everything that I could to, to make that team. So it was, it, he knew those little pieces of my life to kind of work himself in there. And he was a very, very powerful person. He he was what I thought my ticket was to get to the Olympics. So when he showed interest in me, I was like, oh my gosh, it was almost as if like a celebrity would like come on to you, you know, and you would be kind of like butterflies, you know? So I... I I knew my parents taught me right from wrong, you know, like my parents taught my, my parents were great parents. Um, I grew up in a very nuclear family raised Catholic, um, very conservative. I knew right from wrong, but it's almost like you can't, you just can't control it because the grooming process is so strong. So fast forward 20 years later, this whole time I've felt Terrible, because I thought I broke his heart when I transferred to the University of Arizona, but to go to the University of Texas, but never, never let that happen again. Once I got to the University of Texas, I felt like I had broken his heart because um, because I wouldn't let it happen again. He made a couple more advances uh, towards me at the University of Texas, and I just didn't take the bait anymore because I knew by that time, I was like, "I dated a couple guys. You know, I, I'd gotten a little smarter um in that respect. And so I just didn't take the bait, and i I always felt terrible. We turned into best friends and coach athlete only, but I just didn't do it. And so fast forward twenty years, and I watched this show, this movie documentary, "Leaving Neverland," which is a huge piece in this story and did you know what
0: this um documentary was about or did you come upon it just by
1: you it? i remember i remember my husband texting me because we're always looking for like good documentaries or movies to watch together and i remember my husband texting me and saying you know we need to um we need to watch this documentary that just came out it's called leaving neverland and i was like well, what's it about and he's like well you know how Neverland was where Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson's big compound, and I was like, oh yeah, he's like it just talks about like the whole you know story of him and and you know the little kids and whether he was guilty or not. And I was like, oh yeah, we should watch that. Didn't really dawn on me, you know, um, because I didn't understand how much of it was grooming. You yeah. know, I I hadn't connected the two yet, and so we watched, we we lay down in bed and we're, we turn it on and we're watching it. And my husband, by the way, doesn't know anything about this. I have not told a single solitary soul, not my best friend, not my parents, not my husband. I married the guy and didn't tell him, you know, like you tell that you're and you said, another, everything. Is it
0: true that, um, your former coach, John Rambo actually went to your wedding? Right? Yes. You he obviously... was in my wedding,
1: right? In your wedding. He was, he was in my wedding as a groomsman, which is, like I will never be able to erase those pictures anymore, but I, that is how badly I felt for, you know, um, stopping that relationship. And, and I just felt like, well, we have this super close connection. Obviously when you make an Olympic team, your coach does become very close to you for, you know, you're both accomplishing this great thing. So that's not unusual. And by the time I had made the Olympic team, there was no relation, there was no physical relationship there. So it was like making an Olympic team with your best friend kind of thing, you know, and, and, and your coach. She was your coach for the Olympic team. Yes, 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 because I was at the University of Texas. Right. So it it was just a very strong relationship between coach athlete by that time. We knew obviously everything about each other because we had gone through this relationship prior. So, um, so I just remember, sitting down, laying down in bed with my husband, watching that movie documentary and being like thinking to myself like, oh my God, oh my God. And I I almost like like lost my breath, like became quiet and just kind of didn't really know what to do because I was like, oh my gosh. Like I was like one of those boys in that movie that was being groomed by this powerful person, power imbalance, that's a huge thing. Like you cannot have a power imbalance of coach athlete and allow that to happen. Um, It should never be allowed. And so I sat there and watched it from beginning to end going like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do about this? Because the memories started coming back into my head and I got this flashback triggered a lot yeah i got this flashback of jessica johnson who is one of my um who's also in this class action lawsuit with me one of the representatives and um i remembered him pulling me aside on the university of texas track it had to have been when i was like a senior before the Olympics not that long before and him saying, you know, Jessica Johnson is accusing me of these things, but you know, I would never do that. Right. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. Like I had convinced myself that even though he did it to me, like he would never do it to anybody else because I, it was like a one-off thing. And he was in love with me before. And like, you know, how would like, he would never do that to anybody else. What we had was real, you know? Um, and I was like, no, of course not. I got your back you know? And I literally like had his back. So if they would have ever approached me at that time, I would have been like, no, like she's crazy, you know? And I think it really hurt our relationship because for 20 years, like, she's like, you never had my back, you know? But I just never believed he would do it to anybody else. When I watched... Is that is that the I watched
0: all of Leaving Neverland after we chatted because when you told me that was your trigger I, I had to go see it I watched the entire thing I think it was like five hours of this yeah. thing and what you were just talking about um, that power imbalance and there's a bit of brainwashing in, yeah. in that movie where these young kids um, are they fall in love with this like you said, a celebrity figure this powerful figure there are young kids that are young and naive you were young and naive yeah. um and just the brain is it brainwashing that you just couldn't or didn't want to see what was happening yes
1: when you like came
0: to you yeah. and came to you and said i
1: need help he's doing this and you said no yeah. Yeah. Well, so she, I think he had put enough division between the two of us that she would never approach me about it. I just remember, um, totally having his back and being like, no, no, no I got you. Like, we're basically besties at this time. So no, like I, I, I will support you. Um, and then, you know, really believing him and it, it did it, like, I look back on it and I'm like this total brainwash feel. You know like I, I would never have imagined that he would have ever done this to anybody else like he had me totally convinced that like this was a one-off thing it was you know it, it happens you know I'm married but like it happens and I just always felt for 20 years I felt guilty of like allowing him to do that when he was married and terrible for his wife And there were, there were a few times along the way that I thought, does Sue need to know about this? Like, does, does she need, does she need to know? Like, I don't want to cause her more pain than she, I just, I I thought it would cause her more pain. And then I found out she had cancer and it, um, I was really like torn between what to do because right, it wasn't soon. It wasn't that far before I saw leaving Neverland that I found out that she had cancer, so then I was like really conflicted of like, "Oh gosh, you know, if I pull this up into the public eye and what happens to him is what should happen to him, that he shouldn't be coaching anymore. Obviously, he's not capable of handling a relationship with a, an athlete that's of the opposite sex, like it's apparent. Um, i I just felt like... I was conflicted. So I sought therapy. I went to a counselor and she was the first one to hear about it. And she was like, Oh, my this gosh. was after, after you watched leaving Neverland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was after I watched leaving Neverland that I was like, I've got something that I need to get off my back because I did not have any skeletons in my closet. That was one thing like I, about 15 years ago, there was one other thing that, um, had happened between myself and one of my teammates in college and a guy that I dated had broken up with her to date me. And it was just a little, you know, there was a little bit of an overlap and I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself anymore. So I felt I had like two skeletons in my closet. That was one. And then the other one was this relationship that I had had with my coach. And so I, I made a commitment at that time that I was not going to die without kind of coming to terms and apologizing and about everything. But the one thing I couldn't do was say anything about this coach athlete relationship. So I apologized to her. She's like, oh my gosh, it's no big deal. Like we're adults now. It's, I'm glad that that relationship didn't happen. And I was like, well, me too. But um, that was like the one skeleton in my closet that was left. And I never thought I would ever have the courage to talk about it. But at some point um, knowing that he was coaching high school girls, at the time that the knowledge of that ended up kind of trumping um, how i was gonna feel about myself and i thought i've got a duty to get him out of coaching because it's just not fair it's not fair to girls if i don't say something for it to continue to happen And
0: and that is one of the most powerful things. Going back to this quote, the next sentence from that same USA Today article is, you said, um, but I decided that I couldn't stay silent any longer. If I did, so many more girls would continue to be abused. Um, And and that is uh, just the responsibility and the action that you have taken since is. it is so selfless, Erin. Just a little aside from me: the fact that you were able to find your courage—you're, in fact, um, not only genuinely helping yourself and your own health, but um, uh, potentially life-saving for other people. So that that's super powerful um, yeah. and encouraging to others that are listening, that could, uh, that are in your same position, other track athletes from these universities. Um, so with yeah, with leaving so- never. With leaving Neverland and you're in therapy and um, understanding more that how, how deep the grooming process was, you said at one stage also that it was so slow, you didn't even know it was happening. Um, were there any other just overwhelming triggers in that movie that you found yourself dealing with? For other listeners that um, might be coming to terms with this, Uh, things that you wouldn't have recognized in the past that that movie pulled up and you said well that that's me that happened to me
1: yeah it was um it was the deep relationship that Michael Jackson had with the parents of these kids he made the parents of the kids feel like so special you know you watch the look on the face of the parents of these kids where it happened. And you know, I think if I remember correctly, I, I've only watched it once. I did never go back and watch it again for obvious reasons. But one of the guys that comes forward with it is kind of still in that stage of like, I don't know if I can forgive my parents for this. I don't know if you remember that. And then the I other do. one is the other one is like, He's actually from Australia. I researched. Oh, he him. Is. His name is okay. Wade Robson. He's, um, he's okay. had an
0: incredible thing, but yeah, he's an Australian and, uh, it sounded like Michael Jackson from what I saw groomed his, this guy's parents as hard, if not more calculating right. than Wade to get to Wade. So was that your Absolutely. experience
1: with the, yeah, the I grooming? mean, that was, yeah, I mean, that was my experience. I think, um, You know, he was constantly, John would like send me gifts. Uh, You know, he was constantly doing nice things for my parents. It was very similar, which is why it resonated so much. I mean, it's the gift giving and the calls and the relationships and, you know, you just start to trust this person. So how
0: did your parents though, in the movie, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing so many parallels, so the grooming process is happening with your parents. And you've said that you guys are a tight family. It's not like it's, you just, you're very tight. You know what's, what's going on in each other's lives. So the phone calls, the phone calls is the thing that stood out to me in the Michael Jackson story with these young boys who were, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years yeah. old and long two hour, three hour daily conversations on the phone. So when this 35 year old, track coach is calling you in your home before when you're 16 17 years old before you've even gotten out of the house to college is the grooming process so severe that your parents are how does that work because that's a is that natural for us to have those conversations with a 35 year old coach for hours
1: um on the phone um right i think I think it, it back then, especially, it was not even a thought of like what's happening because the one thing I will say is that there is no manual on how to raise an Olympic athlete, you know, and so beyond the fact that my parents weren't elite athletes, you know, even if they were, I mean, an Olympian is like a totally different. So so your kid says, I wanna go to the Olympics. And as a parent, you're like, oh my gosh, I must provide them every opportunity to accomplish this goal. She's obviously very serious about this. I mean, she doesn't date, she doesn't hardly do anything except for think about the Olympics, you know? I mean, I had, just to give you an idea, I had my whole house around all the walls in the house was a um tape mark a black tape mark at the world record and it was it went all the way around my house and how how so high that was, was that in meters huh? it was it was two meters and nine so it would have been 210 and so i Like, it was basically like, so that every time I would be in my house or walk around the house, like I would be looking at what it was that, you know, they they say that, you know, you, you look at it and you see it all the time that you're going to do it. (laughs) And so, um, and so I had that in my house so that it wouldn't look foreign to me when I, when the bar actually got to that height and I had to jump over it. So that is how obsessed I was with making an Olympic team. And And, and like I said, I don't think that parents know, like, what do I do? What do I do to raise an Olympic athlete? If she wants to talk to her coach about, you know, for an hour or two every night, like, I, I I guess there's stuff to talk about. I don't know. You know, it goes back Um, to that power imbalance
0: with those young kids who were, um, they were very specialty dancers and talented young kids. So they weren't pulled into michael jackson's realm because they were just cute or something they actually had a lot of talent so he preyed right. on that and he preyed on their dreams just like mm-hmm. it sounds yes. that your former coach was preying on your dreams and then to that next awful level preying on your parents knowing that that's their kid and you do anything for your child you and i both have children
1: Let's
0: um, see. you you give your whole life for these kids so um
1: there's that and in power order to imbalance. get to the kid you need to get you need to the care the parents are like the door to the children you know so right. you've got to work on them hard so would you say that
0: open would you say for people listening just as warning signs, just so that um, there are, like you said, it was so subtle and such a long process, you didn't even know it was happening. Of course, your parents didn't know what was happening. So what are those critical warning signs that you would just blast out there for people going through something like this?
1: Just, you know, any conversations that are in private for an extended period of time. Like, I think that, um, you know, 30 minutes once a week is probably sufficient, you know? Um, Nothing needs to be talked about that long And, and nothing can be talked about really that long. Like you can't talk high jump technique for that many hours, you know? I mean, there were one of the most vivid memories I have of when this process kind of started to transition into more of like a sexual one was when he, was like, oh, I want to see your senior pictures. And I think this is in the article as well. And and so I was like, oh, okay. Like I showed him my senior pictures and he's like, ah, that one is my favorite. I love that line on the side of your legs when it's when your legs are crossed, that like iliotibial band, like that's my favorite muscle. And I was just like, oh my God, he thinks my legs are hot, you know? <laughs> and I mean, it's just silly, but there's no reason for your kids to be talking on the phone or to be in a private place situation with, I would say, I mean, I was, I was about to say someone of the opposite sex, but like anyone that is older, that's in an authority position because it, it, it doesn't need to happen. And, you know, of course my parents know that now, back then this stuff was not talked about. So they, they have like when they heard my story they were obviously mortified and my mom still occasionally is like how did I let that happen and I'm like mom don't it is not it's not your fault I wouldn't have known either you know I would have done anything for my kid to have them but yeah like never send your kid to some event by themselves with a coach it's when they're that young you know. You were separated Um, again i saw these kids go
0: from um say for example this one kid wade robson flown from his home in sydney um to los angeles and and that separation of the um, the student athlete or the child from the parents yeah Um, and then you going to sydney australia your story is quite profound you're a young teenager going with your coach to a foreign country with no form of communication, completely separated from your family. And this is the person that is protecting and safeguarding you um, and the person that's supposed to be looking after you. Um, So he's, I don't know, did he have much to do in the decision of him getting
1: that role to go to Sydney? Was that something? Um, I mean, I'm sure it was like part of the whole process. Probably super excited when my high school coach couldn't go and was like, well, I mean, I'm I'm happy to to take her, you know. Well, I my parents were like, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, she'll she'll be his athlete at Arizona, you know, in a few months because I it was the summer after my senior year, you know, so it's like, well, that's who's gonna coach her in college. So I guess that's the next best thing.
0: And you had no Uh, other
1: teammates with you. It was just the two of you. No, we had, I mean, it was team USA. So, but we weren't on all in the same flight. Like we take different flights from different locations and then you all meet in Sydney. And so we had, you know, our whole team USA in in one hotel, but um, I'm trying to even think if we had roommates, I don't even remember. he had his own room, so, yeah. um, which my parents paid for. So my parents paid for all of it. Um, and always did. My parents paid for his hotel rooms and for him to travel Europe with me the summer after my freshman year in college to go do the European tour so that my coach would be with me so that I could do my best, you know? Um, and of course It was all, I mean, by that time though, we were like literally in a relationship. So, um, but they're just, I mean, my poor parents are like, what happened? Cause it was just, like I said, it's grooming is such a slow methodical process and you do not know it's happening. And that is why of all the forms of sexual abuse, they're all absolutely horrible for their own, in their own ways, right? but grooming is like so scary because it's so slow and you don't know it and you're stuck before you realize like you're in a relationship now so, so you know? and it's
0: when you when you get to that point in the movie and you you understand all right this is um this is all coming to the surface for you now then you you land in therapy which means okay it's telling me that your mind is going I've got to do something here what happens after that Aaron is there how long is it before you start speaking
1: out who's the first person you told I told my my husband Mm. Um, how did you tell him I remember like it was yesterday you know I think he was like what is up with her you know but he like couldn't really figure it out like jump that day you know like but this has gone on for like a month month and a half it took me a while before I got up the courage to say something and I remember him saying something I can't remember exactly what it was that kind of like triggered the emotions but we had kids in the back seat we were on our way to go to the YMCA to work out and there were kids in the back seat so he says something and I'm like it was something about like trauma that he experienced, which was like nothing <laughs> like um, to the point of what it was that I was experiencing, but it's like something super small. And um, I was like, you just don't understand. And he's like, what do you mean I don't understand? And um, and so I was like, let's just go get the kids in, in child care and then come back and talk to me in the, in the car. So I was like, oh, my God, it's happening. Um, so he went and put the kids in childcare, came back in the car. And he's like, what's up? Like, what is up? And I was like, okay, you really want to know, you want to know what's going on? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, John, the John that you love, you know, cause he's now agreeing with my husband um, to get into his good graces because he doesn't want me to ever say anything. So he needs everybody to like think he's great. So my husband's like, yeah, like, we've gone to dinner with John and paid for his dinner all the time. He's come to our house and stayed in our, you know, guest bedroom. Like he's like your best friend, right? You know, your coach, you experienced an Olympic team together. And I was like, yeah, but he groomed me when I was in high school. And you know, how I always, like you say, we talk about our first kisses, kisses and all that kind of stuff. John was my first kiss. He, and then I went on and like told him all this stuff and he was just floored like in total shock and i was like that's what's going on like that that's what i'm dealing with right now and he's like oh my god how did that make
0: you feel when you said that the first time to him
1: um in a weird way just like a total weight had been let had come off of my shoulders because i had been nervous to tell my husband about this because i was like nervous now for a couple, a couple of reasons. Number one was that I didn't know what he would think of me. You know, am I suddenly like not the great wife or, you know, partner that he thought I always was, you know, like I've got these crazy things in my past. Um, and then number two, I was, I was worried that he had, he would feel that I deceived him, you know, that we tell each other everything. Like, we've been married for what, eight years at this time. And like, you've never told me about this. Like I married you, he was in our wedding and you never told me about this. So I I didn't know how he would respond, but he was very caring, very supportive. I felt a huge weight off my shoulders because he didn't, he wasn't angry at me. He was just in complete shock it was taking him some time to process it but there was there wasn't anger there which i was like thank god because that was what i was worried about this whole time um so then he was in therapy with me to like try to unpack all this and i had no intention of bringing this public i really at that time i just wanted it for myself because like i said i didn't want to have any skeletons in my closet. And so after watching that movie, I thought I need to get rid of this one for the first time in my life. I thought I need to get rid of this one. I need to like tell someone so that I can get it off my chest. And, um, and then after I told him, we went into therapy together to kind of unpack it and how it affected our lives as a married couple. And, um, so he was amazing still is. And then I thought, I kind of need to tell my parents, you know, they need to know about this. But I thought I also don't want to tell them if it's going to cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also reached a point where I was like, I think I need to confront John about this. And like, why did you do this to me? Why did you think this was okay? You know, but I was worried about hurting him and the relationship that we had and all these things, all these emotions that come along with this kind of thing of like coming forward. But I didn't, I wasn't in a place where I was like, where I had the courage to like come forward in a way that it was going to really hurt him. Like like his job, you know, and expose who he was as a coach. So it took, that was like the whole progression in therapy of like, you know, Coming to grips with certain pieces and, and going through all of those emotions of like sadness, anger, you know, all those grieving processes, yeah. and tackling them one by one, and then and having some to point, and
0: having to deal, like you said, with your own behavioral issues and mental and f- mental and physical that come with bringing yeah. up poison basically and trying to release it. And um, you have a lot of your own health concerns. To be thinking yeah. about as well, you're saying you're thinking of your parents and John's feelings and all of this on top of what you're going through. So yeah, then I'm it's, thinking then it turns so you you're in therapy and, and it's all coming up and you you have powerful feelings of telling more people. Um, yeah. that's that's a, a big piece of this. And I can you talk about that link then where all of a sudden what you had thought was just something to get your skeletons out of the closet Mm -hmm. is now very quickly heading towards confronting John which uh, as we've seen there is a lawsuit today how does this all link up
1: so it's a long process but at some point I reached that moment where I thought I need to I need to confront him about what he did you know and and hoping that he would apologize and say, I did something wrong, you know, I'm sorry, but also knowing him, um, as well as I did, I knew that that probably wasn't the likely scenario because he's a pretty headstrong. I mean, the, the word is narcissistic person. And, and a lot of times people like that don't apologize. They actually dig their, Peels in further. So at this point, I still wasn't thinking anything about taking it to the media or, you know, like nothing. Um, but I did know about safe sports which they had enacted um, with the U.S. Olympic Committee. I see that
0: um, you filed, I I did read how you filed a formal complaint with United States Center for Safe Sport for people, um, for athletes out there. Erin, this is a really um, critical piece here that that not only you went there, but you knew about it. Um, How'd you know about this organization? What is it for our listeners and and what was that um, process? To file your complaint,
1: yeah. So um, this, the so SafeSport was enacted, um, and Nancy Hogshead is, is one of the the big uh, amazing people behind that. And she can probably go into way further depth than I can, but um, it was enacted as a result, really. Nancy
0: Nancy Hogshead civil rights lawyer and 1984 three time Olympic gold medalist. Yes, Um, (laughs) thank you. for (laughs) One time silver medalist at the 84 Olympics, where I actually was a 13 year old girl in that stadium from L.A
1: watching oh, those man.
0: opening ceremonies and, and seeing all that. And so, that was me too, right? I was watching the yes, 84 Olympics that's, too. I didn't want to interrupt you at the time, no. but the 1984 Olympics is a real connecting point for a lot I of know. us with, um, and, and so was Kim Rodenbaugh, Llewellyn. Yes. She was also a swimmer in the 84 Olympics. And I was there watching them walk into the stadium. So, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. I do know Nancy very well, and um, she is the she is the powerhouse dynamite behind the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Um, she yes. comes behind it with all the legislation that actually led up to the um, the development of this
1: um, actual organization that exists in Colorado today. So it's incredible, and they started U.S. Center for Safe Sport for that very reason. There was really no place for athletes to go. they experienced these things so you know they had to go to like their ngb or you know university or whatever it is and report that there's obviously a conflict of interest there like an ngb doesn't want to help themselves uh, national governing body body, like the ncaa correct Correct. Yes. yes so when i Kind of when I when I talk about this, I, I say that the the you know national governing body and NGB, or actually let's start with the US Olympic Committee is to the NCAA as an NGB is to a university, kind of, you know, like they're the they're yeah. what kind of governs those NGBs and the NCAA is kind of like what governs um, universities. So the Olympic committee put this into effect in order to kind of hold accountable. Um, NGBs, you know, people that work for them, um, all of that. And I, I would love for you to talk to Nancy Hogshead Maker about this even further in depth, because I'm probably doing a terrible job of explaining it, but she's She's kind of the one that like built it all. So well, it would be um, amazing be to hear to.
0: her perspective from that legal perspective, but you can right. you are the athlete. So it's really yeah. powerful to hear your experience from the athletes that are out there. Would they feel safe in that first step? I know telling your story the first time would be terrifying and horrifying as you've mentioned. Um, did you find in your experience that you felt safe? I've seen the website, I've gone to it and yeah. in a big tab straight in the front is to file a complaint, hit this button. What What makes them want to hit that button
1: and feel they are going to be trusted or believed or safe? That's a good question um, because I went there, I think probably one or two times and started filling it out and then bailed because of something about, um, I just, there was something that it said that it's legal stuff that you kind of have to say before you file a complaint. And I remember, um, just getting cold feet a couple times prior to that. So I, I didn't actually end up pulling the trigger until I made that decision that it was okay with me that people knew about this because it would go into a database and they would conduct their investigation. And it wouldn't say, I don't think who it it was, but you know, if my, if my coach from college was, was being investigated, everyone would know who it was because of the relationship that we had. Like people already had it on their radar of like, well, that's that relationship of that coach athlete is weird, you know? So I, I knew that people looked at us kind of like that. It was like the elephant in the room all the time that I was always like, no, 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 no. But like everyone knew, you know. So, so you, when, you didn't actually tell people you had a relationship, but everybody knew. Everyone right? knew. I mean, yeah. yeah, everyone suspected, I guess sure. I should say, you know, but there was no like physical evidence. How did, except just, for... just really quickly, um, just clarifying,
0: how did you actually, as an athlete, know about the U.S. Center for Safe Sport? Is, is that something that is passed out via email to all athletes? How do you know about it?
1: Um, I'm trying to think of how I knew about, I think I, I think I knew about it because of the Larry Nassar case and reading about it and hearing about it. And I think it might've been mentioned a few times in that book. Gotcha. So I, so I knew about it and I knew that that was probably my starting point. So
0: you, that's, that's totally fascinating to me. And it's so important for people listening right now. I get chills because you said you went to the site. Right. The tab button is right there. And twice you bailed on filing the complaint. Yeah. That's massive because most yeah. times in, in these situations, it's so hard to talk about this stuff. You try one time and if you can't get the courage up, you just bail altogether. together. So what was it that, was it the third time that you actually filed that complaint?
1: What made you finally do it? Here's what actually did it. And I, it, it's a pretty significant moment because I'm trying to think of if I have, I don't think I have the email. I might be able to find it if I dug it up hard enough, but I wrote John a letter, a letter from me to him, you know, and this was when I was in therapy and before I had made the decision to come forward. In order for my own healing to happen, I wrote him a letter that was basically like, I've sat on this for 20 years. I knew it was wrong. My parents raised me right. Um, Why did you do this to me? You knew that I had never had any experience with anyone sexually. I have to live with the fact that you were my first when it should have been someone my own age that was not married. Um, And, you know, I mean, I asked him a bunch of questions, one of which was like, would you be proud? Like if, if you, um, it was something to the effect of, um, would you be proud of, uh, of telling Jared, which is his son, would you be proud telling your son this story? And um, would you be okay with it if he was the one that had done this, you know? Like just kind of like hypothetical rhetorical questions, um, and basically I just said I, I I want you I want you to retire and never coach again, and if you can't do that, then I I'm I'm gonna have to do it myself, you know. Was this when he was this when you found out that he was coaching high school now at Los Gatos in Northern California, yes. California or yes, you know,
0: high,
1: school high school girls like yeah. you were. Yeah. And I thought, oh God, that's horrifying because I got sucked in over the phone, you know? Like he wasn't even in my physical presence, but if he was in my physical presence, it would have happened earlier than that, unless he was so smart that like, he's not gonna touch anybody until they're 18, you know? Um, and that is you like, can't take a chance on is what where it sounds right. like. Yeah. Right, so I wrote this letter and um, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call him and I'm gonna read it to him over the phone. And I, I wrote it out because typically I would just be like, fly by the seat of my pants and be like blah, blah, you know? But I wanted to make sure I got everything out the way that I wanted to articulate it. And so that was by putting it down on paper and I was gonna read it to him. And so I tried to set up a time where, I, where we could talk so that it was more calculated of like, you know, are you available at such and such time? And he kind of knew what was going on because uh, I'm trying to think of of how he knew and what the timeline of all this was. But like there was, um, by this time I may have talked to one of his athletes that he had to tell them, I think I had, that's currently high jumping at SMU. And so I, she was very, very, very close to John. And so I told her because I wanted to give her a good, the, the the option to like, tell me if anything had happened to her, which I kind of, I thought something had, but I don't know. It's, I don't know if something's happened to her at all, but, um, but anyway, I think she might have alluded to him or kind of let the cat out of the bag. And so he kind of knew something was going on. And so, he started to kind of screen my calls and not respond to me, which is the first time ever because we had that great relationship, right? And so I basically told myself I'm going to give him one more shot to respond to me because if he's not going to respond to me, then that makes me mad, you know? I want him to listen, and if if he's, not right li- <laughs> if he's not. Right now, he's not. He's not going to give me the respect to listen to the story and to confront this. I don't feel as bad for him anymore. You know, I'm ready to like stop his coaching career because it needs to be. So I gave him one more shot and I was like, um, I'm available between, I gave him a heads up, you know, like two or three times that I was available in the next few days. Like if he didn't have, if he couldn't make one of those work, then it wasn't going to be a good thing. And he didn't. And so that was that pivotal moment when I turned from like empathetic to him in some way and still kind of like you know feeling like it was my fault and I don't want to hurt him and those emotions to like nope game on like I he he's not going to be he's not going to be able to coach anymore flip the switch <laughs> and um I just, I didn't feel like he was mature enough or the, you know, a, a decent enough person to be able to realize what he had done or come to terms and apologize. Um, and I I felt that he was still doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And so I thought he he can't coach anymore. So is that is that when you went back and and was, hit the that button? That <laughs> was the phone call. That was the, you know, safe sport, third time you're out kind of thing. Right. And like, clicked the send, and um, because of I, I actually included that note as an attachment in my in in my report, and um, and they've they've used it throughout this case. Never never with, I, I I didn't have that intention when I wrote it, but I'm actually like, kind of like, well, I mean, you know, if that's what they need to use as evidence. That's fine. Um, but yeah, so I sent, I sent in the the claim and, um, they felt like it was serious enough to start the investigation immediately. And one thing that you kind of have to know about safe sport is, and it, Nancy might have this exact statistic, but it is something crazy. Like two years ago, when I when I submitted this, um, this complaint, two years ago, it was like, they had received something crazy and don't quote me, but like 4,000 reports in like three years. I don't know, have you heard this statistic? It's uh, something- I'm, in, I'm not gonna be quoted
0: either and we'll get
1: Nancy because she'll spit these things out. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. Perfectly, but you're completely right. The statistics are shocking at how many shocking. claims went f- just funneling through this organization um, and the amount of staff that they had. It was just yeah. completely imbalanced
1: to it's manage like,
0: that floodgates
1: opened. And, you know, just shocking not only just, right.
0: just to see what's going on out there, and there's finally one organization that is um, in a position to specifically manage these things. So, and um, where have all these, where have all these situations been sitting just out there
1: and now they're all In, coming into the hub internal, you know, yeah. just sitting, sitting, festering inside people. And now so, there is a place to report and the floodgates have opened. And as you know, and unfortunately, uh, SafeSport is not large enough to be equipped to handle them all. So I feel super blessed. That they took my case and handled it immediately, and I think the reason they did was because he was coaching minors when I filed. You know, I think that's the only reason. If that had not been the case, I think ours would still be in the queue. So here's here's another question then for you. This is um, this. Will be very critical
0: for anyone listening that um, is an athlete in the uh, is it the late ninety late nineties to two thousand or the nineties yeah. to 2000s, that any track athlete that has been coached by John Rimbo um, Rimbal um, they're sitting here right now they've been in silence for all of these years and uh, there will be somebody that is on the brink of wanting to tell their story and come forward. And and lock arms with you. What should they do? Is U.S. Center for Safe Sport the place for them to go? Um, what would you say to them uh, as far as what you said? You felt lucky that they took your case, so your case is now um, a reality. So if they were to come forward, they'd be attached to this um, lawsuit that's actually got legs on it. Um, is that the right place for them to go first, or what? What would you say?
1: Yeah. So. Um... I would take it back even further because we know, you know, he's been coaching since the early '80s. Correct. And there were yeah. others prior to me. So, um, anyone from the early '80s till now um, should probably go to Safe Sport and should reach out to um, our attorney, Beth Fagan who is handling our case on, uh, on an NCAA level. So there's the safe sport piece, which is um, you know the Olympic level and just making sure that he is not able to coach anymore. So he's on suspension. We, the, the case is now pretty much closed. We've been through mediation. He is officially suspended, um, so he will not be coaching Anymore in the so, so to give a big
0: high five to US Center for Safe Sport, you got a result, Aaron, you, you just said, um, as a result of you filing this claim against him, um, he's been suspended from coaching. That's, yeah, that's a huge result. You've got something extraordinary happening here. You've connected again with um, two former Uh, cross-country track athletes. So you've got uh, Jessica Johnson and Londa Bevins and yourself, um, who are the three women that have filed this class action lawsuit together. Um, In your estimation, you are not alone out there and there are others listening um, over a long career of Johns that have been in this same situation and have experienced um, this type of abuse. Um, So from here, You have um, an incredible team, the three of you. Um, You've got the NCAA here talking about the laws. The NCAA acknowledges that any sexual contact between a coach and a student athlete is sexual abuse because the coach holds all the power and the student athlete holds none. And then further in the claim in this class action, which I read, (laughs) um, despite this, the NCAA does not categorize Categorically prohibit such behavior. That lack of institutional boundary setting has allowed coaches with bad boundaries to continue taking advantage of young, vulnerable athletes. So here we are. Um, this is this is a time, Erin, where the laws are um, just seemingly criminal. They're not protecting our athletes. They're not empowering our athletes. Uh, they institutional change needs to happen. Otherwise, the result is the continued abuse of our athletes out there right now and in our future. I have a a young daughter, two boys, you have two children. Um, These are the next generation of athletes potentially that walk into this system of abuse that exists today. Um, I'd like you to take this time, Erin, you you have a team. You've got your family around you, you've got your lawyers, you've got the class action lawsuit um, in progress. You are motivated in the core, as I've read, for the institutional change so that we, you've put yourself on the line and your entire life to prevent this happening to other people. Um, please take this time to speak to those listeners, those athletes out there that are tuning in, um, that have this story that could come forward, that know their, let them know what their contribution can be to this. What, just whatever you'd like to say to them, have, have the opportunity
1: to say it. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that the NCAA does not have the ability to cherry pick what they want to police and in this instance this is such an important um, change that i think that we're trying to make because this is the future this is the future of young women and men who are extremely vulnerable at this period of their life going through college and before college being groomed um, or sexually abused in any other way and We know that there are several others out there, hundreds, thousands maybe, um, who have the same story, the same story as I do, the same story of others who have experienced some other form of, of sexual abuse and from a different coach and you're not alone. You're not alone in this and this is nothing to be ashamed of. You were taken advantage of. Uh, there is a significant power imbalance that needs to be stopped, and these coaches need to be held accountable, and that's what that's what we're going for. We're going for a um, a system where something similar to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport can be created on an NCAA level. That there is also a database when a coach is reported that their name goes into the database so that they can't go from university to university to university continually doing the same thing. My coach started his career at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo where he um, did things that weren't appropriate. He then went to the University of Arizona where my abuse happened. He then went to the University of Texas where Jessica Johnson's abuse happened. He then went to Southern Methodist University where you know, we're subpoenaing all sub, subpoenaing all um, universities where he was to find out if there's any other information that was reported during that time. Uh, he went to Stanford University, Cal Berkeley, and then now is coaching high school or was coaching high school girls. And in my opinion, he was coaching high school girls probably because his rope had ended. And um, that was the only place that he could go where they, there was no reputation necessarily um so it's time it's time your time is now to to come forward tell your story you're only helping people with this unfortunately with the me too movement um this is not looked upon as you know something terrible that someone in a, in a lesser position and, and a position that was not authority if it happened to them like this is this is a problem that we have with society and and I encourage anyone who experienced something similar to come forward. Wonderful. And, um, at this stage, so
0: anybody listening that, um, has a story that they're thinking of sharing, look at safe sport. Um, there's the website, U S center for safe sport. Um, you have your attorney, Beth Fagan. Um, Mm -hmm. they could look up, And um, what's the next
1: step step in the legal process? Where are you right now? Yeah, so we are waiting for, I believe we're waiting for a response from the NCAA uh, in the Indiana courts. And of course, you know, this legal process takes a long time. It could be years, um, hopefully not. But the ball I believe is in in their court at this point, so. Strangely enough, I don't keep, you know, up to date with everything that's going on on a daily basis because it would just take up too much of my um, emotional space. Um, and I try to just—I that—that's why I hire—I hired an attorney because I, I hired someone that I knew was was very good. She represented the victims of Harvey Weinstein. Um, she's a lot of experience with this. She's she also represented the victims of. Um, concussion football concussion in NCAA so she's been against the NCAA before so you know by hiring her I was just like this is the story you take it you run with it I'll be back to listen to occasional updates but I I've got to live my life and move on and it was never supposed to be part of my story that I was going to have to come forward with this anyway and it's it's horrifying as it is, so I don't want to continue with that.
0: I, um, I appreciate what you're going through. Incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, and, and just on that note, um, I'm not being conscious of your time. Uh, the responsibility and action that you've taken is something that is in in my mind gold medal class. Erin, um, you're this is tough stuff. It's easy to sweep under the rug. It's easy to just tell your family and move on and not deal with it. But the fact that there is the um, opportunity for coaches um, to continue doing and abusing their athletes today and in the future without this kind of institutional change from the governing bodies um, is very, very scary. It's frightening and the only way that the changes are gonna happen are because of people like you. You are single-handedly with Jessica and Londa making this happen. And um, it is so, so overwhelmingly powerful to see what you're doing on behalf of people you don't even know. Um, so I just wanna thank you personally for that. It's it's extraordinary what you're doing, your responsibility to others. So. Uh, that's world class, man. <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, all, the, all the best with that. So as we go forward, you're, um, you said it could be a long drawn out process here at OpenStance. Gosh, we'd love to um, have you back at another time to keep updated, hear what the progress is, um, stay up to date with um, what's happening and, um, you know, root you on and support you in any any way that we can. And on that, um, thank you for being here today. I know it's Mother's Day coming up. So, (laughs) wishing you an amazing Mother's Day in Dallas, Texas, um, with your husband and your
1: lovely two boys. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for having this podcast. I mean, this is helping so much to get the word out. Without these kinds of platforms, it would be so much more difficult to spread the words i i truly truly appreciate everything that you're doing with open stance and allowing me to share my story and you know hopefully helping others to just feel more comfortable to come forward because this is all too common and and it needs to stop it really does and that's literally the motivation and the core of what i'm doing here at
0: open stance this is for all of us this is just a channel it's a vessel it's um It's something that was created to connect and unify voices that's literally the bottom line of why we're here and one voice is powerful Uh, you have three voices in your case which is already showing the power of what three voices can do and again this podcast to share this is a way to unify and like you've mentioned before sending that message that you are not alone out there people we can bring you all together there is a place for you on a team um, of people that understand and that support you that you can trust and that believe you Um, and and that's literally what um, the whole genesis of, of this platform is is not just to tell stories, but to educate, um, create awareness, and bring people together, especially in a case like this, Erin, that you're doing, um, to be able to have more voices, just lends to the a bigger chance that you'll be able to um, dislodge the bar, as you would say, in the high mm-hmm. jump world, like you've yeah. always tried to not dislodge the bar, I imagine right now is the opposite. You're trying to dislodge that bar yep. and make the change. So knock it down. Let's um let's share this and um, reach as many people as we can and because they're out there, we know that. And let's get those laws changed.
1: Yeah. Well, it's thank you're you just so amazing much.
0: and thank you for having the guts, the courage, all of it. It's it's tough. Um, you've been absolutely, absolutely. wonderful. So, all the best to you. Mm-hmm. Have a super day. And thank you. Uh, we're going to have you back here again soon if you'd like to and uh, check
1: in again on, on how you're going. I would, I'd love to join again. And, and as soon as I get any more updates on the case, happy to share. And I hope you feel like you would never
0: to learn more about champion women and for help with any issues related to women in sports, such as sexual harassment and abuse participation, or pregnancy discrimination, please visit www.championwomen.org. And the U.S. Center for Safe Sport offers live confidential help over the phone on 866-200-0796 or visit www.uscenterforsafesport.org. Hi, this is Tracy Smith, and I would like to say a special thank you to the following people for contributing to the making of Open Stance. You are all an integral part of bringing this podcast to life. Alex Molchanoff, my editor, what a pro. Thank you. Kim rodenbaugh Llewellyn for your friendship, support, counsel, and your belief in me. Thank you for sharing your book, Master of the Mask as a resource. Nancy Hogshead-Makar and Champion Women, Thank you for paving the way and for your leadership. You inspire me every day. Elise Marie Hunter, thank you for providing me the rights to use your Spotify track, Light as a Feather. And to my husband, Jimmy Smith, your love and continued encouragement have helped make my vision come to life. Thank you for giving me the greatest gift of all, understanding. Jimmy, you have helped me, and that helped will now help many others as Open Stance grows and finds its way to people who need its support and education. And to my mentors who have shared their brave voices, you are making a difference in the world by sharing your experiences. This podcast only works with your support. Thank you to my brother Brady Height, Kim Rodenbaugh allen Nancy Hogshead-Makar, Gavin Badger, Aaron Aldrich Sheen, and Amelia Thorpe, of ameliathorpe.blog. And a special thank you to Life and Mind Psychology in Sydney, Australia. Thank you to the founder and primary clinical psychologist, Stephanie Allen, and your amazing colleague, clinical psychologist, Alana Carpin. Thank you all very much.